Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and welcome to the first episode of season three, or shall I say, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in each week, and I really do appreciate all of your comments and shares on social media. Please do keep them coming, and thank you from the bottom of my heart. In this episode, I've convinced the CEO of Nuflex, Steve Jude, to share his story and insights into leading the UK's largest space-as-a-service operator who deploys the recently hot management agreement model. Now, I'll never forget the first time I met Steve back in 2014 when I was CEO of MediumRooms.com. We had a brilliant chat on the future of work and flexibility for the small business community. Today's episode is probably a little longer than our first chat. In fact, it's probably the longest episode I've ever recorded on this podcast. But Steve's been in this industry a long time and has personally been involved in 70 management agreements. That's seven zero seventy management agreements. So you're in for a treat as we dive into what's made Nuflex a success. You'll learn the story of how Nuflex got started, how a multi-brand strategy helps asset owners meet customer demand, and why hotel-style management agreements keep landlord and operator partnerships aligned. Steve shares a few tips for asset owners thinking about space as a service and management agreements, including how to navigate the potential conflict between a brand's ambition and the asset owner's business plans. Finally, at first on the show, Steve challenges the status quo, which I love, but Steve challenges the status quo of my very own quickfire round. Now, as always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. So are you ready to dive in? Let's go. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker. And today I'm talking with Steve Jude, Chief Exec for Nuflex, the one-stop service for asset owners looking to future-proof their portfolios with space as a service and monetize the flexible working trend. I like to think of Nuflex as the Hilton or Marriott for commercial real estate because the group is a family of brands that support their landlord clients through management agreements, very similar to what we see in the hotel industry. The group has operated over 70 buildings across the United Kingdom on behalf of some of the biggest names in global commercial property. From the south in Brighton, England, all the way up north to Aberdeen, Scotland, Nuflex has dots on the map from the city centers like London to smaller suburbs. Their team of 150 space-as-a-service experts is generated for their landlord clients over £100 million in cash under their management tenure. Now, earlier in his career, Steve specialized in marketing for the travel industry working with some big names such as British Airways, TUI, and Avis Car Rental. He became an expert and specialist in yield management, and by chance, one day, bumped into Regis's CEO, Mark Dixon. The two got to talking, and Steve, not knowing anything about the then-serviced office industry, convinced Mark that Regis was just a yield management business. The rest is history, as Steve joined Mark to become worldwide sales and marketing director for Regis through their flotation. After that, Steve went into private equity for a bit, and then became a privateer to turn around companies that were struggling. 13 years ago, he took on the struggling serviced office brand CityBase, turned the company around, and led them through the global financial crisis to become stronger than ever before. And today, he's chief exec of Nuflex. Welcome to the Workbook Podcast, Steve. Right, thanks, Caleb. That's great. <laughs> well, um, I'm glad you, uh, you you finally joined us at season three, and I just, I'm excited to talk to you about this. So, yeah, that's great. Thank you. 
your career has been focused uh, on space as a service over the last 20 years, including yeah. like most of us in our industry, some time with Regis. Yeah. But, but two years ago, you partnered with Newable to launch NewFlex. What was the driver behind this partnership? Uh, well, yes, most of us um, have worked at uh, Regis at, at some point. And uh, for me, that was a absolutely wonderful experience. I, I thought it was a great time of my career. Um, the the driver behind um, uh, becoming part of the Newable uh, group was that one of the founders of CityBase uh, wanted to retire. And so we were looking for a partner. And we went out to the market, had a look for partners. And what we found was that uh, finding people with money was um, relatively easy. Um, finding people with a culture that we felt would work with our strategy and our values and our organization was quite hard. Um, and then we came across Newable. And they were quite easily the best fit in terms of their culture and values and leadership. And um, we became part of their um, their group. And uh, nearly two years in now, uh, it's been a good decision. It's been a great decision. You know, for the folks who are listening who may not have known about, know who Newable is, can you sort of give some background on, on what they've done historically? Yeah, um, Newable's uh, mission is to support small businesses um, and they do that through three uh, legs of their stool. Uh, they have uh, an advice business, which advises small businesses on anything from exporting to India to um, how to look at uh, spreadsheets better. And they have a team of international trade advisors around uh, the southeast of England that work with uh, government to um, do that. And that's the sort of bedrock of the business. Um, then more latterly, they've got a money business because SMEs uh, need uh, finance. So there's a, a business that's to do with money and SMEs need space. And that's where we come in. So what we liked about Newable is their culture and values was all about supporting small businesses, which is really what we think we're all about as well. So, Steve, obviously, you know this, but um, for everybody listening, um, I think there's, some of our audience knows this as well. But Bold was acquired by Newable last year, which means you're now my boss. <laughs> but the driver behind that is our is our multi-branch strategy, in, in w which I was excited about. But I'm often asked um, why Newflex isn't just putting all their energy into making one brand successful. So how would you respond to that question? Yeah, well, it's a good question, and it's a, a valid question. I mean, a, a single brand strategy is okay. Um, uh, you know, many people will be interested in a single uh, brand strategy. Um, you know, you differentiate by the type of customer you're after and, and, you know, the values that you have in your personality, and then you go for a type of building and all of these sorts of things. And that's fine. And, and that can be, uh, that can be really successful. Um, but we had a look at um, what we thought we were and what we thought the market needed um, in that not many people I would uh, contend and, you know, from a marketing background, this is anathema to some of my marketing colleagues, but I don't really think in the uh, flexible space sector, there have been many brands that have actually cut through that actually add much value uh, to the operation that they have. WeWork is the exception to that, who were uh, valued more 
I think from from their brand point of view than their operational point of view. But you know, we all know how that's going. Um, so we did. We really decided that that was not where we wanted to compete and where our strengths were. And what we thought, and this didn't, you know, happen in a eureka moment. It happened over a period of time. Is that we decided that we wanted to actually work for clients. And like many ideas, uh, you know, out of adversity springs new strategies. So when I first joined um, CityBase, the, you know, the company was, was a longstanding company, but was, you know, had seen better days. And uh, we wanted to grow the company. And this is what, you know, what I learned from private equity is you've got two strategies. You either grow a business or you sell it, because if you're not growing it, what are you doing, you know? Sure. Um, so well, I thought, well, how can we grow this? Because we don't have any money. Uh, and then the financial crash um, hits and nobody had any money. So it's like, well, what do we do with this? Well, what happened is we uh, teamed up with banks and receivers and lawyers who were had distressed portfolios. And we said, well, yeah, we can help you with that. We can fill it with small businesses. We can generate cash until you can offload these assets. So that's what we did. And it was a it was a defensive measure to allow us to grow the business without investing any capital. So we did that for a couple of years and we thought, well, we're really good at this. This is something that we can really do. Perhaps we should ask some more people about whether they would like to um, to do this. So I, with my uh, ignorance of the market, just started knocking on doors and said, look, here's a good idea. Would you like us to help? And of course, nine out of 10 people said no. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, occasionally, um, uh, people like uh, Nick Leslau and Mike Brown said, okay, let's give it a go. So, you know, you start slowly and uh, people with, um, you know, who were looking through to how the future might be said, okay, we'll give it a go. So slowly we we built a client-based business. And just to clarify, um, when you say clients, you mean the asset owners? Correct, yeah. So our clients are the asset owners. I know in the in the sort of service office industry, clients are occupiers, and um, I get that. We just couldn't do that because we have clients as well, and we couldn't we we couldn't think of a better name. So we call our occupiers customers, and we call our uh, asset owners clients. Um, so what then happens is we went ahead with that with a city-based brand, and then. And did great jobs for people, you know, really great jobs for people. And, and it helped us grow and it helped us uh, work. And then what I began to realize is that we were doing tremendous work for people. And, you know, they weren't picking up the phone and saying, here's another building, here's another building, here's another building, which I thought they would because we're doing so great. So um, once I was on holiday, in Portugal, and I thought, I'm going to just call a few people up because this has been on my mind. What's going on? And they all said is, look, we love what you're doing. Um, and if ever we get something that fits the city-based brand in the future, you're, you, we're going to call you straight away. But we, all of our buildings that we have at the moment don't really fit your brand. And I thought, okay, we've put in far too much hard work uh, with these guys, and we've built great relations. Um, 
we need to be able to work across their portfolio. Mm. So from that basis, we went back to my um, uh, travel industry days and thinking about Marriott and Hilton and people like this who have a multi-brand strategy. And um, we thought, well, why don't we do the same? We're a, we're a client-focused business. Our clients really like what we're doing, but they only see us being appropriate for a narrow part of their portfolio. What if we had a portfolio of brands that could go across all of their portfolio and we could provide those services there? So that's that's what we've done. And I think the, the big difference that we have against most of the other operators uh, uh, around is that we we take a brief from our client who is the asset owner and we deliver a solution which meets with their demands because mm -hmm. it's all about our client it's not about us and if you're building a brand it's all about us and that's okay i've built brands before and i know that that's okay so our brand is is not something we think uh, we want we want to push what we want to push is our ability to service our clients and keep them happy and so it's all about our clients and the brands that we deploy are the right brands for the right solutions for our client at that time so what we then do to get back to your your first point we put an awful lot of energy into this but we don't put it into brand building um, we put it into um, culture and values and people and you know smart people who can work with clients to overcome their problems so a long answer to a, to a short question but that's the crux of what we are so i think it, you know it, it was worth spending some time on that well i think um you know it's interesting you talk about looking at the asset and not going in with one brand and what fixed mindset but taking the asset the business plan of the asset the mandates of the asset and, and understanding what the requirements are to make it successful and then applying yeah. the right brand strategy. We touched on that a little bit in um, the last episode of season two on the podcast. Um, yeah. and, and, and historically, the story that sort of built the success of, 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 this, uh, of, the, of the city based brand was, um, was working on these distressed asset business plans. Mm. Um, but there's another story to tell that we're going to come on to in a moment uh, on, on the future of work. But before mm. I dive into that, I, I want to really address where we are today in, in these last mm. four months, because it's been really hard for, I think, everybody, mm. including us, in, in commercial real estate. W what do you think? For, what's been for you what's <clears> been the hardest part? Well, um, it's yeah, it's a good question. Um, but, you know, um, the hardest part for uh, me and our company is is nothing compared to the um, you know, the people who've been directly affected by the COVID-19 and the support workers and the frontline staff. I mean, we're, we're, it's nothing compared to what those guys have been through. Sure, um, but we, from a business sense, this is uh, by far, by far the worst economic uh, situation that I've ever come across. I mean, it is, it, it, you know, the financial crash was bad, but this is just in a different league. Um, so, so the, the worst part for our business, uh, and the hardest part for our business is some people have left, you know, some customers that we are occupying our buildings with good businesses have just had to leave because it, you know, it, it couldn't work, it couldn't work out for them. And unfortunately, some of our 
um, you know, loyal and good employees have had to leave because we've had to cut our cloth to the circumstances. So it's the it's the human side of things that's been, I think, has been the the worst thing. Um, uh, however, this is the best of times and the worst of times, or the worst of times and the best of times, whatever. Um, uh, because out of adversity, I think, has come something remarkable. So even though this has been a amazingly hard time for uh, everybody uh, in our sector um, within our and within our company. I mean, we have used that to say, look, what what have we always dreamed of doing and we never have? And, you know, how can we make the business fit for a world where COVID is around? So really what we've done in the last Four months now. Four months now. Yeah, we've we've effectively dismantled the existing business and rebuilt it back up again from basic principles. Um, and this has been a huge re-engineering program. I mean, seventy percent of all of our uh, employees have now got new job roles. I mean, they're not entirely new, you know, but they're different job roles to the ones that they have. We've introduced a whole load of barrage of new products and services, and that will continue. So in some ways, it's sort of forced us into doing all of those things that were, have been in our in-tray for a few years. And we thought, oh, yeah, well, we'll get around to that sometime. And you kind of never do. But then something like this happens and you think, right, come on, let's get everything out and let's just do everything. And that's what we've done. And what I think has been made it's kind of the best of times is the, the culture and values of our company that I was talking about before have absolutely come to the fore and leaders have emerged all over the business in unexpected places. And, you know, that, you know, makes me really proud of the way our guys have, uh, have gone for this. Uh, the other thing I would say, Caleb, is uh, I don't think this is over anytime soon. There was people talking about a V-shaped recession. I mean, let's see. I'd be surprised. Yeah, I, I think there's a, certainly a lot of discussion right now on how long this is going to last, and there's been a lot of uncertainty. It's been great to have some sort of lockdown relaxation lately here in the UK, and I know the US is, is struggling with that as well, and won't get into all those details, but um, you know, certainly for our industry, uh, commercial real estate as a whole, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of big questions. And I think one of those questions uh, that's come up specifically for the spaces and service world is – and a lot of experts have expecting and predicting there's going to be some consolidation in our sector. And, you know, mm. you see, we see we work in, in no-tail and, and these guys, but, you know, there's a lot of lot of brands that were, you know, smaller mom and pops to the, you know, mid-sized companies that are on these leases mm. and dealing with lease mm. arbitrage. Mm. Um, do you expect to see consolidation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the the uh, There's always consolidation after an economic downturn and you know the what the the uk economy contracted by what 25 percent or something the us economy i read i think 32 and a half percent or something i mean these are unparalleled uh contractions in the economy and uh unlike other recessions um it's kind of happening everywhere because it's a global pandemic um so in that environment uh, people will play um, defense rather than offense. You know, they'll there'll be a lot of defensive behavior. 
But I think the, the, the real reason there'll be consolidation is because of the, the nature of the um, flexible space market, which is overwhelmingly driven by people who, as you rightly say, are doing leasehold arbitrage. So they're, now, if you do that, what you're doing is you're buying long and you're selling short. Uh, and that can work. I mean, you know, you can make a lot of money if you buy long at the right price. And, uh, you know, a 200,000 square foot WeWork doesn't open up directly across the street. Um, you can make a lot of money uh, doing that. The, the issue is going to be the selling short part of things. Um, and if we get into a selling short point of view, it becomes a buyer's market. It becomes an occupier's market. And uh, there are, uh, in central London at least, we know, there are, you know, tens of thousands of um, empty uh, workstations um, in the in the flexible center, uh, sector. And what happened last time and the time before that is because people are on leases, they have a quarter-day spike of cash, and they'll do almost anything on price just to get people in. Um, and therefore, you get into a price war. And we've seen, I've seen this you know, twice already. This is what will happen. And if you've committed on a lease, um, which was um, uh, taken at the wrong part of the cycle, so you're on a high uh, value lease, and you went to a, a long recession based on price, this is going to hurt an awful lot of people. It's just maths. I mean, it's just maths. It happens all the time. It happens in all sectors. Um, and there's no reason why it won't happen in our sector. It's absolutely. And, and I think, you know, the absorption rate, when you look at the spaces of service, lease holders that have been taking these leases, shifting the footprint from, you know, four, five, six, up close to pushing 10% of the overall uh, stock of office space um, mm. over the last, what, year or two, three years, um, has been sort of deceiving in the commercial real estate world because it, it, it looks like um, there's more occupancy than what there really is. But there hasn't been transparency in a lot of these leases where, where who, are they really full? And, and, and what's happened is the, the, the risk has been improperly allocated, so to speak. And I think mm -hmm. that the risk has been taken on by these leasehold operators, um, which isn't sustainable in, in a, an economy like we're seeing now. And so um, I think what's going to happen is is the the landlords or some landlords, some asset holders are going to be left with some spaces that you know, they're not ready to operate. Um, yeah. So uh, it's going to be an interesting time coming up ahead. And and I've got I want to come back to this topic in just a second, but I have an open-ended question for you um, that's sort of tied to this. You know, what want to ask what your view is on the future of work. You know, considering oh. considering right now the work from home and or work from anywhere. Um, that's gone mainstream right now. Do you think that's sustainable? What's the future? Crikey, what a big question. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try my best. Um, what's the future of work? Um, well, I think, uh, let's look at this. I think there are big, let's put COVID-19 to one side just for now. Um, there are big trends in the world of, in the, in the world that are going on that affect the world of work. Um, and these have been going on some time, and there's nothing to say they won't stop at the moment. So big trends would be a general shift from the West to the East. I mean, we can all see that. Um, another big trend, the automation trend, will probably be usurped by the artificial intelligence trend. I mean, that, that hasn't quite gotten there yet, but 
from the you know stuff I read about artificial intelligence that uh, you know could get rid of a whole load of uh, uh, jobs that are around now. I think McKinsey said I, like forty nine percent of the tasks that we're doing today in work can be automated. Today, yeah. wow, wow, wow. Yeah, well, there you go. Good. Um, the I think environmental sustainability will continue to come to the fore, um, and uh, and then this is like how do we get our food and how do we get our water? So these, you know, these are not directly like to do with work all of the time, but these things are going on and they can't not affect the world of work. Um, so we, more specifically about work and about offices, I think we're at a really uh, interesting moment um, that maybe doesn't happen more than once in someone's career where, where the whole basis of the industry that you're in has to question why it exists. So that, you know, the question I think for working in offices is why does anyone need an office? You know, why does anyone need an office? Um, the, uh, the enforced homeworking experiment that's been done globally pretty much for the last uh, four months hasn't been that bad. Hasn't been universally good, but it hasn't been that bad. And I think what this does is it is it changes the relationship between the landlord and the tenant in, in a quite fundamental way. I think in that um, if uh, well his, historically, if you had a business, a white collar business, it would be almost unthinkable that you could say, right, I'm going to have a business and everybody's going to work from their kitchen table in different towns, but we're going to have our business. That's how we're going to set it up. You know, everybody would get some sort of office to go to because the office was the place where you did work. It was kind of a motherhood and apple pie type statement. Where, where, where do you go to work? Oh, well, I go to work in an office. You know, that's what we do. Sure. Um, but I think, um, and you know, you and I have been talking about how this trend is changing over time. And, you know, we've been banging on about this for a long time. And it, and it is changing and it's changed really slowly. But I think the COVID thing has forced people to, to work from home. And the ubiquity of um, Zoom and Teams and, you know, other platforms uh, and broadband in people's homes has been like, well, okay, so why do I get on a train and you know, go into London, that's a half an hour in, half an hour out, to type emails on a desk when I can type emails on the desk from my kitchen table and save money and not have the risk and I can maybe work locally. So I think there's a whole uh, uh, bunch of thinking that has to be done within the office sector. And I think from the first time, and certainly in my time around, the the occupier, so the consumer or the customer, actually has a choice, and their choice is not to take an office at all. And historically, I don't think that's really been a choice that people have thought about. Maybe on the fringes, but you know, I think I've been a thinker and operator on the fringes, and I've never really ever thought that you wouldn't need an office at all. But I think that's the thing uh, to think about. I think one of the main things also that comes into that. And this is certainly with um, artificial intelligence and globalization is, um, you know, there's this um, concept of the precariat, which is, you know, people who are like two paychecks away from devastation financially, you know, because they're 
geared up and their job is maybe a zero hours contract and all this stuff that mm-hmm. precariat word. But I think, you know, the new precariat might be the traditional middle classes of the world um, whose, whose jobs could be replaced by artificial intelligence. So I think that's going to, that's going to be a, a new wave of change in work uh, that can happen. And I think all of these things are happening anyway. It's just, I think, COVID has absolutely smashed it through. I mean, we were thinking that these sorts of trends might take a decade and, you know, JLL and CBRE are talking about the end of the decade, it'll be this. I think that end of the decade has just gone now. It's just gone woof. Um, so there'll be a lot of change, I think. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And, and the acceleration, you're right on point there. Um, and, you know, for, for me, I, I've, I've been on the fringes as well as early adopter of, um, you know, remote working or working mm. from anywhere for, for quite some time, probably a decade now, even myself. Mm. And, and even, even just this last week, I was, I was looking at you know, kind of hopefully dreaming a little bit about taking some holiday, <laughs> but, mm. but depending on subject to all this, you know, lockdown stuff. But I was looking at, um, at, uh, at hotels in, in Croatia and, mm. um, and then I was looking at Airbnbs in Croatia and I'm thinking, I, I'm thinking I could probably get faster air, faster Wi-Fi, and be able to work remotely um, in the Airbnb <laughs> than the hotel. So I'm wondering if people are saying the same thing about their office. <laughs> yeah, well, it could be. I mean, one of the things we've always done is that uh, we put super fast broadband into all of our centers because I think that is, you know, that's just like having running water. You know, you just gotta, you just gotta have it. Um, Absolutely. Because because one of the benefits of coming to an office rather than staying at home is you don't get buffering when you're on a zoom call with your boss talking about a pay rise, you know, <laughs> when you're having that, convers- <laughs> when you're having that conversation, you want to be crystal clear. Absolutely. You know? Especially, especially, especially if you're doing a face to face on video, you need that bandwidth. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, okay. You, you, you mentioned the precariat and the, in the AI stuff. And I really like that kind of conversation in, in, I, I, I really would love Personally, I want to dive into to those details. It doesn't. We won't do it on this podcast, and I don't even think it fits the sort of the the theme of of the Work Bold podcast. But I, I I think I'm thinking maybe maybe if you're listening today, tell me if I'm way off here. Should we have a Think Bold podcast that dives into some of these future thinking conversations? Hmm. Anyways, <laughs> maybe we'll cut that out. Maybe we'll leave it in. I don't know. Um, but speaking of thinking, um, you wrote an article. In pro- they got published in Property Week, and, and I'm going to mm. quote you if you don't mind here. In, mm. in that article, you say landlords who don't offer space as a service w- will join the race to the bottom for the reduced number of occupiers who will accept the pre-crisis status quo. That's a pretty – and I'm going to say it. That's a pretty bold statement. <laughs> so, mm. so my question to you is do you actually think every asset should have some form of space as a service in it? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I I don't think everyone should, and I think, uh, but what I think everyone should do is think about it, and you know it, it should be a part of the consideration. And I think um, this, you know, just blends into what we've just been talking about: what is the future of work, and and how will work um, be? Um, so. And the change in the customer, and let's get back to this, you know, why does anyone need an office? You know, why does anyone need an office? And we've got this um, slogan that uh, we we put around um, in uh, in our city-based uh, local sub-brand, 
which um you know is is a stay safe save money and preserve the magic you know stay safe which is largely about don't commute you know go to a covid secure and uh, uh, work environment save money don't spend the money on commuting don't spend the money on a expensive downtown office and they're all things that people are doing already and that you can do that on zoom you know so you can work at home but preserving the magic i think is the is the key thing and i think um what will happen with um uh, offices and you know barclays just early from barclays was saying this you know he says it's really not necessarily the greatest idea to have 7000 people from barclays always all working in one office and of course it's not you know um it, it's not a good idea because from a risk point of view you know the risk committee of barclays surely would have looked at this it's a surprising risk that they seem to have um, tolerated so i think what we're going to get is we're going to get more of a distributed workforce where um you know you don't have to trudge into a, an office just to type emails you, you, there's no point doing that so what's the point of an office and i think the point of an office is about the human stuff the collaboration and the creativity and the innovation and the uh, social aspects that you can't get on on teams or zoom and teams or zoom are great um i can't remember exactly where i saw this but one of the the banking guys was saying um homeworking is going really well but only because of the social contacts we already made when we were in the office and i think this is right i think this is right that homeworking is going well because it's being done by people who uh, know each other and they know each other because they've been in the office together for years so so you've already built up that soft um relationship so therefore i think i think the office is going to be smaller because you're not going to have 7000 people trudging into one office it's going to be more dispersed because you might as well have an office closer to where people live so that they can save money their work life balance is good and all that sort of stuff and they stay safe um so i think space as a service is really just right right in the middle of that and the you know you can uh, and i think building owners need to consider how they're going to how their business buildings are going to be used how they're going to be attractive to these customers who now have a choice who now have a choice they can decide not to take a lease they can decide not to take an office um and it's got to work for the collaborative and creative and energetic part of the world that and part of business life that that uh, video conferencing at the moment doesn't quite do yeah um, so that's why i think space of, so therefore if you don't get into that what's your product and your product is then going to be not as attractive as a product that allows people to do that because it's allowed the, the other product is allowing people to do what they want the other product is putting the relationship back this is what we've got do you want to buy it i don't think this is how people are thinking anymore yeah it's 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 the whole uh, and people are probably tired of hearing this but it's the whole drill versus the hole in the wall you know yeah. in commercial real estate we we sell drills we sell white boxes historically yeah. but people don't want that they want a hole in the wall and yeah, so that's right we have to be talking we, you know we have to be building and delivering services that help our customers get what they what they actually want what are the outcomes that their customers looking for and um you know yeah. I, I think yeah did you, sorry go ahead well what i was going to say that you know space in in this post covid type of way or living with covid sort of way 
you know, the space is at service. It's it's the it's the right phrase. It's a service. It's a service to businesses to help them make more money, and it helps them make more money than if they had all of their people just working for the from their kitchen tables. So this so so how are you going to do that? And just having space as an object, like a thing, just isn't going to cut it. We've got to get right under the needs of our uh, customers and occupiers and clients and understand how we can help them make more money because their their alternative is let's not take any real estate whatsoever let's put everybody to kitchen tables and see how we get on and you know now that's yep. not going to suit everybody um but there'll be finance directors all around the world at the moment saying well this is fantastic i can cut out my second biggest cost line this is fantastic and in a recession finance directors quite important. I have to say for any finance directors listening, they're always important. But in a recession, they're particularly important. And that's what we're facing. Well, if we connect the dots back to um, why offices are going to be shrinking out on the backside of this pandemic, and, and you talk about the office as being the place where you, people, they, they, they establish their relationships before they go work from home. I think whilst they, we won't go to a 100% remote work scenario. No. No. Um, companies will have smaller offices to create that culture, mm. to be the destination, the hub that people come to, to mm. meet and build the relationships. Um, it won't be every day, but it'll be there for them. Um, yeah. And, and, and then the actual product itself, the service, the space needs to be dynamic to be able to attract mm. people in, um, which you know we've gotten into before. But I think um, what what's happening though, and what I'm seeing in conversations that are being had online and, and also offline conversations um, in the commercial real estate community, it's it, it seems to be coming from a more of a perspective of a head in the sand or denial uh, kind of perspective about the evolution in our industry that's needed. You know, from the changes in, in, in the demand that's happening to design changes that we need and the flexibility to valuation methodologies, it's as if commercial real estate sort of it, the, the industry is still like mm, in denial about it. So, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say out loud. I'm this is gonna sound slightly self-serving here, but I've, I've got to bring this up. You know, as a group, Newflex. You know, we work and consult with numerous asset owners, mm-hmm. um, and and obviously you're in touch with all the C level folks um, mm-hmm. yourself. So I'm curious, what's the attitude? Or perspective that you're hearing in your conversations with our landlord clients? Are they on the fence or are they actually leaning into the future? Um, it's a good question. Um, obviously, uh, anyone who's working with is super smart already, so they buy in. It's a sort of <laughs> self-selecting audience. Um, but in all seriousness, I've seen a change. Um, I think uh, if you'd asked me that question uh, six months ago, I would have said, well, you know, I meet 25% of people who uh, are thinking, you know, this is how the future might be. Um, the people that I'm talking to now, I would say it's 75, 80% of people are, are thinking about about this. Uh, you can't not um, in that uh, the, the uh, from everything we've said before, um, the people are realizing that they can't not think about this. So, and, and just put it like, you know, this, and this, this covers the whole thing. I mean, CBRE and Jones Lang 
both came to the view that you know there's about 30% of the market or people's portfolios should be flexible by the end of the decade. So so 30%. Um, now from the point of view of the flexible real estate market, you know, maybe five percent of the market, you know, maybe seven percent of the market, but you're talking about five or six times growth just to have 30% of the market. And that would leave 70% of people taking a long-term conventional lease. Well, and that's by the end of the decade. So I, you know, I'm our business, yeah, I mean, our business would grow like mad if the market of just our little bit of it grew by six times, uh, you know, over, over that period. And that's what we've done our business plans on, you know, that 10-year that period. That period has been concertinaed into a position where um, views have changed now. And you can see this in the take-up rates of quarter one, and I saw some early quarter two things yesterday. Mm. I mean, the take-up rates are just staggeringly low. I mean, they're staggeringly low. Now, some of this is going to come back, and maybe 70% of this will come back. Um, you know, cities are resilient, and humans are resilient, and they bounce back. But I think... Uh, Everybody that I'm speaking to now is, is not thinking that space as a service and flexible officing is kind of a fringe activity and it's a bit niche. Uh, people are now thinking that, you know, we've got to consider this in everything that we do. And we might not do it all the time. You know, we might not do it seven times out of 10, but maybe we're going to do it three times out of 10, mm. which for me, who's been a sort of long-term you know, evangelist for for this sector just looks like an explosion in demand. So, so I think people weren't leaning in six months ago, and I think they really are now. Um, and you know, they're in you're in a very difficult situation if you're an asset owner at the moment because the rules of the game have changed. You know, about how you you get financed and how your building gets valued is largely do with long term income. Um, long-term income doesn't seem that prevalent anymore. So, you, so I think I think they're just in a, a difficult place and are actually looking for solutions. And um, uh, you know, obviously, we're here to help um, because we'll help them look for solutions. So I think there has been a change, Caleb. Six months ago, I would have said, "Yeah, not much thinking about this." Now, I think almost everybody's thinking about it. Well, I think it's a good segue because um, you know I want to I want to talk I, I want to get some tips from you for asset owners um, because you know the hot topic is you know management agreements and joint ventures versus leases in our sector and yeah. and considering all the the we work in no tell turbulence over the last year I, I've actually seen a bit of a change in attitude towards management agreements uh, just a few years ago when I was having conversations at the door would get slammed in my face if I brought that word up. Yeah, I've um, been there. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, some are even saying it's actually preferred now to do a management agreement so the landlord retains control. Um, but obviously, you know, you've been leading the group and deploying this model since since the global financial crisis in two thousand eight. So, what sort of tips do you have for asset owners who are who are thinking about this? I think uh, the first tip would be don't slam the door in people's face. Um, that uh, because all opinions, I think, are kind of valid. Um, I think it's worth, you know, listening to what people say. Uh, you can discount it, but nevertheless, it might 
be something that you want to hear. So I think I would, I would say to asset owners, just just listen uh, and see if you think it's right. And, and if it's not, well, then it's not. That's okay. Um, I think the key thing I would also say to um, asset managers is uh, don't do a lease that's in an SPV. <laughs> so if someone's putting a lease in an SPV in the sector, I'd probably avoid it. Can you elaborate um, on that? Why? Uh, well, uh, if you're in a SPV, um, then you know it has been heard uh, that uh, around the place that um, SPVs go bust, and then your value that you think you're getting by a lease becomes zero. So I think you know that uh, doesn't help the asset owner if um, someone that they've just let two hundred thousand square feet to just busts their SPV, you know, or something like that. So that's okay. uh, that's a worry. Um, but I think the so I would recommend that asset uh, owners really think about what their ideal outcome is for their asset, really think what it is, and then partner with someone who can execute their vision and the strategy that they want. And I think get, getting back to what you said um, earlier on, Caleb, about brand, I think um, if you partner with somebody who's more interested in building their brand, i.e. they're more interested in themselves, than, than someone who is actually not building their brand and they're putting their client in charge. If you go with someone whose main role in life is to build their brand, then you're almost inevitably going to get a suboptimal outcome because they're not putting you in charge. So, so can I sort of challenge that or mm -hmm. not necessarily challenge the principle of that, but I'm a big believer in brand. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, obviously in our group, we have, we have brands. So mm -hmm. when you say, when, when you state that someone is more interested in building their brand versus helping, can you, how do you balance between growing the brand and, um, and then making sure that that asset makes the right amount of money for their business plan? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I understand that. I think the, um, uh, I believe in, in, and brands generally as, as well. I think brands can uh, shift uh, behavior. Um, and if you look at someone like Apple, you know, people would shift their behavior towards Apple. Um, but, you know, within our sector, where would people shift their behavior to? We work probably has been the only one that I've seen where people would say, no, I don't care what else is on offer. I'm going to WeWork. Have really probably be the only people who've got a brand um you know and people in our sector in my view um don't uh, follow the brand uh, the operator's brand they are attracted by the building in which the operator operates um and the brand you know so if you took a, a really nice building in mayfair and put five different brands on it in five years you'd probably do the same sales because it's a beautiful office in Mayfair. So it's a good location with the flexible terms and good price and da, 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 da. So um, as someone who's come from marketing in this sector, it sounds weird for me to say, but I, I think that uh, brands don't have the pulling power in our sector um, that they do in other sector. And secondly, people just don't put the money behind it. I mean, if you, you know, you imagine how much money WeWork have put behind their their brand marketing over time is, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, uh, to affect that. Um, so I think 
and you've got to understand what, then why people have got this brand. Um, and certainly within within our sector, you know, people have got brands because they want an exit. You know, they want to build a brand and get bought. Um, so if they're wanting, if that's their outcome, then um, that's not necessarily going to work on a management contract in in favor of the the asset owner. So I think brands and being a brand, a single brand operator, make you work in a particular way, which is about reinforcing uh, the benefit to yourself. And I think if we're, we're to work in a collaborative way, um, you have to think about your clients. I mean, internally, um, you know, we talk, you know, it's not serious, but we think of ourselves as a funky McKinsey. You know, so we we think as hard as McKinsey, but we execute it in a really funky manner. And I think this is because we see our, ourselves as consultative, that we put the client first and the customer comes first, but ourselves. And if we get that right, we'll have a great business because good things will flow to us. Um, so I think they would, they would be my tips for uh, asset owners who are considering uh, what to do. So, Steve, if we can just... Maybe this is because I just love brands so much. I want to carry on with this conversation for mm-hmm. just a second. Um, so, you know, I, I believe a brand and the right brand attracts a specific customer because the brand lives and believes and um, delivers an experience that is aligned with with that customer target, that customer segment, that mm-hmm. person. Um, and you know, so you know, obviously, my brand, I'm you know, the bold brand. We we are very much for people who challenge the status quo. I've said that many a times mm-hmm. before. Um, mm-hmm. And so when we talk about building that brand, we're building it because we are, you know, we're not interested in building it to have some sort of exit. We're interested in delivering an experience to customers that we're passionate about. And mm-hmm. so I think what's interesting what, for me, what was interesting about becoming part of the Newflex group was the fact that um, as a group and the team members that are so experts at space as a service in, in delivering cash to the asset owners, we're able to bring those two passions together. So what I heard a moment ago, I don't want to say it was conflicting, but I, I want to connect the dots between building the brand and making money for the asset owners. How, how do we – where's the bridge there? Uh, well, the bridge there is that we uh, build the asset uh, owner's business uh, to their specification, which the brand, with a brand that is appropriate for their particular asset. So, if there's a cert, if the building is a certain type of building located in an area that is uh, frequented by people who would prefer a bold brand to an easy hub brand, then we would recommend uh, to our client that this would be a bold situation, and and vice versa. Uh, or a Serendipity Labs, or a white label. You know, we we're uh, opening a white label in Lewisham under a brand designed uh, by our client, and that's okay because they want to build their brand as well. Um, okay. So I I think that it's part of our armory. Uh, what I was talking about before is that we've we've started off in a different place. So what we've started off is about our client first. What does our client need? As I think I said earlier, you know, I was wondering why our client wasn't calling me about other things. So we, we started off with our client. We found that our client was happy with us for one brand, the city-based brand, 
but wanted more brands to fit in with their different situations. So therefore, we got brands that could fit into their different situations, of which Bold is, is one, and Easy Hub is one, and Serendipity Labs is one, and so on. Um, uh, whereas if you are building a brand solely, uh, you're not starting out with your client's best wishes uh, intentions first. What you're starting out with is how do I build, build my brand first? So that's one thing. The second thing is that it does allow us to um, uh, short circuit brand building cost and time. So for an example, um, Easy Hub, uh, you know, we're working with Stelios on that, uh, is w certainly within Europe, an extremely known brand, a well-known brand. Sure, of course. We, we, easy we, jet, easy we, hotel. Yeah, uh, we, would, we would spend the rest of our careers failing to build a brand that has the resonance of easy. So why not partner with those guys? That, that, that makes sense. Same with uh, yourself, you know, being the, one of the leading thinkers in this sector, with a brand that works in a specific niche. That's why we wanted to, to partner with you because we thought, well, we could do this ourselves, but it wouldn't have authenticity. You know, it wouldn't have all the thinking, you know. So, and this is the same with Serendipity Labs that um, John Arenas and his team have been building this out in the United States for years. Well, let's work with them. So, so what we're doing in order to accelerate, we, we could build a whole host of brands to focus on different um, situations that our clients had. And we do when we get a white label opportunity. So, you know, we're not averse to that, but um, it is quicker uh, and has more impact to assemble an existing portfolio of brands that can work in a range of different situations, because then we have the best of both worlds is we're talking to our client about what the, um, what is, uh, their situation is and what their outcome is. And we're looking at their assets and their neighborhood and where they are and the demographics and all of this sort of stuff. And the likelihood is one of our existing brands would fit that situation. But if it doesn't, we could put a new brand in and help them white label it. So I think what I'm saying is, you know, um, as I'm a, you know, a marketer by a marketeer by training and history and career and everything is that I think uh, building a brand in our sector is as you know as we've seen with Regis. I mean, Regis have spent tens of millions of dollars on building that brand. But if you walk down a high street in any town in Europe and say, you know, can you tell me what this brand does? You know, the brand recognition for Regis or IWG wouldn't be super high um, because it's a kind of business to business niche type of activity. Um, but if you went down the street and said, well, you know, can you tell me what this easy thing is? Your brand recognition is through the roof. So we would rather get the expertise that people are in the thinking and the creativity and the authenticity um, mm. of people who've developed their own brands. And then we can partner with them. It helps them grow their brands. So we're helping uh, John and his team build the serendipity brand in, in Europe, which you know, he would never have got, he would have got round to, he could do it himself, of course he could, he's a smart guy, and his team is smart, but they've got enough to do in their home market and in, in Asia, so we can help them along the way. So, and I've, I've always been very keen as a principal on, on the principle of, principle of franchising. You know, it, it allows you to roll out your brand at super quick uh, pace. 
The key thing within that making the bridge is the values of the organization, the values of the organization, so that our organization um, can be aligned to, you know, excellent custom service and, uh, you know, uh, 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 innovation and creativity, which works across all of those brands. Well, it sort of it sort of reminds me a little bit a little bit of what Dror was Dror Poleg was saying in in his article about financing the future of real estate and and comparing it to the hotel industry and yeah. if I just bring it all back. Our industry is moving from a B two B market to a B two C market in in terms of um, you know we didn't brand didn't need didn't need to make sense in the past. Whereas if people have choice over where they work, they're going to choose the place that makes them feel good and mm -hmm. and the experience yeah. is going to be yeah delivered in a in a brand experience but then like you're saying the group has an opportunity to then work with the asset owner to understand what experience and what economics works for that asset to figure out yes. what brand to put on it so my final question for you before we head into this quick the quick fire round is going back to George's um, article um, and he actually came on to our podcast, the last episode of season one. If you yeah. haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it, guys uh, and ladies. Um, but um, in his podcast, he talked about uh, the future of commercial real estate and how to finance the future of commercial real estate. So mm -hmm. what – and you read George's book, Steve. What, what's mm -hmm. your view on this? Uh, my view on this is that I'm an amateur with strong interest, <laughs> and, uh, I'm not Very honest. As, and I'm not as smart as draw. Um, uh, so I come, I come from this in a fairly basic situation, and this comes back, I think, to my travel industry experience. Um, in that, uh, hotels have no problem getting valued. You know, um, there's no problem. Hotels are transacted all the time; they're valued all the time. It's not a problem. Um, many of those hotels will be uh, operated by a, a specialist management company who are wearing Hilton T-shirts or Holiday Inn T-shirts. Kind of what we do, you know. This is very similar to what we do. Um, uh, my simplistic view is is that the future of the office is more like a, a hotel for workers than a ten-year upward-only rent review lease. And if it's a hotel for workers, then maybe it should be valued like a like a hotel gets valued. I mean, like it's done all the, all the time. Um, now I can see the downside of that. The downside of that is there is an enormous industry of finance and real estate that is, and pension funds and valuations that is linked to it not being financed by that. So this is a massive change. Um, I don't know whether it's possible to change uh, an industry that's, that's that reliant on the way that things have been. Um, I don't know whether that's possible, but my general view is is if 30% of your marketing of your market uh, is behaving in a way that doesn't um, uh, enable or persuade them to take a long-term institutional lease, then how are you going to value 30% of the market that doesn't behave in the way that fits to the rules of the game? Mm. And my guess is you value it like a hotel, but you know I'm not an expert in this field. Well, you know, and that's thirty percent, assuming that COVID and the trends that we're seeing now doesn't accelerate that. Yeah, maybe it's fifty percent. Absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, I've been very vocal about um, my thoughts on this, and and we're going to be talking about valuations in a little bit more detail later this season in the podcast. But um, I think the big question is, 
what happens to value when your product's not in demand anymore? Yeah, I agree. I agree. It gets back to basics and, and just basic business. You know, any business only exists to serve customers because customers are prepared to make give you their money for something that you provide to them. Um, so if customers are not prepared to give uh, owners of office a- assets their money because they would rather do something else with it, then how do you, what's the reason for that business to exist? You know, what's the reason for a bit for an office to exist if people don't want to have offices? It's a pretty fundamental question. Uh, now, everything that we've said on this and everything that we say all the time is that, you know, the forest is a really big place and it's not going to be all black and white. And, you know, maybe 50% of the market or 70% of the market will happily take a conventional institutional lease for 10 years or 15 years. Maybe they will. But it still leaves an absolute huge part of the market that won't. And how do you value that? There you go. Well, Steve, let's move into something lighter now, because I think we ended that on a, on a very deep, <laughs> deep conversation. <laughs> but let's let's go into the quick fire round now. Um, and uh, you know, you've been in this industry for, for you know for quite some time. Um, and uh, just curious, who who inspires you in our industry? Um. Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I take a different view on on uh, on this. Um, my view my view is that obviously there's a lot of you know great people uh, in our sector. Um, the and I, I think you know Mark Dixon doesn't get the credit that that he deserves. And I understand why that is, by the way. But it, it you know what he's done there has, has been phenomenal. But I think what our industry, um, as all industries are, um, we suffer. F- we, it's easy to suffer from groupthink. You know, everybody's thinking the same, and everybody's talking to the same about the same things. Therefore, we all think this is the way to do it. Like all industry, oh, yeah, all industries are like this. So, what I like to do is, you know, read widely and look at things that that are deliberately not from our sector, or, or not even from. Um, uh, commerce, you know, they might be how you run an arts club or how you run a football team or, you know, um, all sorts of things. And I, because I think, I think we should, we restrict ourselves if we only think about our own industry. So I would, um, I reject the premise of the question, Caleb. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, that's a first. <laughs> Maybe I should stop asking this question going forward. <laughs> well, let's see what let's say, see how you do on this next question then. <laughs> uh, Steve, what podcast or well, maybe outside of the industry. I won't limit it to our industry, but what podcast yeah. or you know what media do you consume to stay um, up in the latest worldly trends? Well, um, for some reason, I seem to get everything from Hello Magazine to the Financial Times on my feeds every every day. So I have a I read widely. <laughs> Um, with all sorts of things. And I think that's um, important if you want to understand customers, you know, you've got to have an idea what's going on. I think if I had to pick um, one person who I, you know, always go to uh, for insight would be uh, Gillian Tett of the Financial Times, who um, is uh, studied anthropology, I believe, Um, you know, so she's not a sort of, uh, comes from a finance background. So, um, and, you know, she famously was one of the first people to spot the 2008 financial crash was going to happen because of the way that groups were behaving 
um, mm. in the finance sector. So I think um, Gillian Tetzel was worth a good read. I think. Okay. Now you mentioned Portugal earlier, and uh, uh, <laughs> so I'm curious: is that is that your favorite holiday destination, or do you have a do you have a favorite? Um. Uh, yeah. Um. That's a that's a tough question. I mean, it's um. 30 degrees in Hay on Wye today, and the River Wye is is lovely. So you know, yeah, the Welsh borders is a good place to be. Um, yeah, just, just just sorry, just to clarify that everyone, uh, Steve is joining us today from from his home in Wales. Yes, that's right. Um, the my view on uh, well, my view on this is, I, 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 you know, when, when's the best holidays that I've had, and the best holidays have always been with my friends and family. So you know, if I'm having a holiday with my friends and family, anywhere's okay. How, um, however, there's there's two types of things that would happen. If I was uh, if I was wanting some experience, I'd always do a sort of slow holiday, you know, walking around. And, you know, we, uh, we've been back to the Atlas Mountains in Morocco a few times and doing trekking through there, which is just great, for mm. a great family thing to do. Um, but uh, if I wanted to lie out on a sunbed and just... Um, you know, uh, do that. And this goes way back to my first ever job at uh, TUI, uh, where I was, um, you know, Greece was my thing. I would, you know, we would always go back to Greece. Um, it's just uh, magical for me. Uh, just wonderful. Well, you're the second person that's mentioned Greece as as a as a good holiday destination, and I think <laughs> I think I think you scored okay on these on these quick fire questions. Uh, but I have to say, <laughs> as someone who believes in challenging the status quo, you did a good job at challenging the status quo of my questions. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. But, but seriously though, Steve, thank, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast no, not today. Not at all. Really appreciate it's a lot of fun. it. Definitely, it was, and uh, and obviously we'll continue the conversations offline. Um, yeah. Everyone listening today. Really appreciate you joining in, and until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Drum roll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. You're listening to a podcast company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at PodcastSyndicator.com or Brett at PodcastSyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.